I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks so much for joining me this evening. Catherine Mansfield, one of the great modernist short story writers, was born in Wellington, New Zealand in 1888. She moved to London in 1903 and attended Queen's College, where she began writing for the college newspaper, eventually becoming its editor. She was also an accomplished cellist and seriously considered a career as a professional musician. In 1906, she returned for a while to New Zealand, where she began to write her short stories. She soon began to tire of provincial New Zealand life and returned to England. Tonight's story, The Garden Party, written in 1922, reflects the privileged world of her parents. It is a beautifully written account of Laura, a naive young woman whose view of the world begins an unexpected and significant change as she is confronted by the death of a neighbor and thoughts on class relations quite different from those of her family. The end of the story is hardly satisfying and prompts the reader to anticipate events to come in Laura's life. The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield And after all, the weather was ideal. They could not have had a more perfect day for a garden party if they had ordered it. Windless, warm, the sky without a cloud. Only the blue was veiled by a haze of light gold, as it is sometimes in early summer. The gardener had been up since dawn, mowing the lawns and sweeping them, until the grass and the dark flat rosettes where the daisy plants had been seemed to shine. As for the roses— You could not help feeling they understood that roses are the only flowers that impress people at garden parties, the only flowers that everybody is certain of knowing. Hundreds, yes, literally hundreds, had come out in a single night. The green bushes bowed down as though they had been visited by archangels. Breakfast was not yet over before men came to put up the marquee. "'Where do you want the marquee put, mother?' "'My dear child, it's no use asking me. "'I'm determined to leave everything to you children this year. "'Forget I am your mother. "'Treat me as an honored guest.' "'But Meg could not possibly go and supervise the men. "'She had washed her hair before breakfast, "'and she sat drinking her coffee in a green turban "'with a dark wet curl stamped on each cheek. "'Jose, the butterfly, always came down in a silk petticoat "'and a kimono jacket. "'You'll have to go, Laura. You're the artistic one.' Away Laura flew, still holding her piece of bread and butter. It's so delicious to have an excuse to eat out of doors, and besides, she loved to arrange things. She always felt she could do it so much better than anybody else. Four men in their shirt-sleeves stood grouped together on the garden path. They carried staves covered with rolls of canvas, and they had big tool-bags slung on their backs. They looked impressive. Laura wished now that she had not got the bread and butter, but there was nowhere to put it, and she couldn't possibly throw it away. She blushed and tried to look severe and even a little bit short-sighted as she came up to them. "'Good morning,' she said, copying her mother's voice, but that sounded so fearfully affected that she was ashamed and stammered like a little girl. "'Oh, um, have you come? Is it about the Marquis?' "'That's right, miss,' said the tallest of the men, a lanky, freckled fellow, and he shifted his tool-bag, knocked back his straw hat, and smiled down at her. That's about it. His smile was so easy, so friendly, that Laura recovered. What nice eyes he had, small, but such a dark blue. And now she looked at the others, they were smiling too. Cheer up, we won't bite, their smile seemed to say. How very nice workmen were, and what a beautiful morning! 
She mustn't mention the morning. She must be businesslike. The Marquis. Well, what about the lily lawn? Would that do? And she pointed to the lily lawn with the hand that didn't hold the bread and butter. They turned. They stared in that direction. A fat little chap thrust out his underlip, and the tall fellow frowned. Oh, I don't fancy it, he said. Not conspicuous enough. You see, with a thing like a marquee, and he turned to Laura in his easy way, you want to put it somewhere where it'll give you a bang slap in the eye if you follow me. Laura's upbringing made her wonder for a moment whether it was quite respectful of a workman to talk to her of bang's slap in the eye, but she did quite follow him. A corner of the tennis court, she suggested. But the band's going to be in one corner. Hmm, going to have a band, are you? said another of the workmen. He was pale. He had a haggard look as his dark eyes scanned the tennis court. What was he thinking? Only a very small band, said Laura gently. Perhaps he wouldn't mind so much if the band was quite small. But the tall fellow interrupted. Look here, miss, that's the place, against those trees, over there, that'll do fine. Against the Caracas. Then the Caracas trees would be hidden, and they were so lovely with their broad, gleaming leaves and their clusters of yellow fruit. They were like trees you imagined growing on a desert island, proud, solitary, lifting their leaves and fruits to the sun in a kind of silent splendor. Must they be hidden by a marquee? They must. Already the men had shouldered their staves and were making for the place. Only the tall fellow was left. He bent down, pinched a sprig of lavender, put his thumb and forefinger to his nose, and snuffed up the smell. When Laura saw that gesture, she forgot all about the Caracas in her wonder at him caring for things like that, caring for the smell of lavender. How many men that she knew would have done such a thing? Oh, how extraordinarily nice workmen were, she thought. Why couldn't she have workmen for friends, rather than the silly boys she danced with and who came to Sunday night supper? She would get on much better with men like these. It's all the fault, she decided, as the tall fellow drew something on the back of an envelope, something that was to be looped up or left to hang, of these absurd class distinctions. Well, for her part, she didn't feel them. Not a bit. Not an atom. And then there came the chock-chock of wooden hammers. Someone whistled. Someone sang out. Are you right there, matey? Matey? The friendliness of it, the... the... Just to prove how happy she was, just to show the tall fellow how at home she felt and how she despised stupid conventions, Laura took a big bite of her bread and butter as she stared at the little drawing. She felt just like a work girl. "'Laura! Laura! Where are you? Telephone, Laura!' a voice cried from the house. "'Coming!' Away she skimmed over the lawn, up the path, up the steps, across the veranda, and into the porch. In the hall, her father and Laurie were brushing their hats, ready to go to the office. "'I say, Laura,' said Laurie very fast, "'you might just give a squiz at my coat before this afternoon. See if it wants pressing.' "'I will,' she said. Suddenly she couldn't stop herself. She ran at Laurie and gave him a small, quick squeeze. "'Oh, I do love parties, don't you?' gasped Laura. "'Rather,' said Laurie's warm, boyish voice, and he squeezed his sister too and gave her a gentle push.' "'Dash off to the telephone, old girl.' "'The telephone. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Kitty?' "'Good morning, dear. Come to lunch? Do, dear. Delighted, of course. It will only be a very scratch meal, just the sandwich crusts and broken meringue shells and what's left over. Yes, isn't it a perfect morning? You're white? Oh, I certainly should. One moment. Hold the line. Mother's coming.' And Laura sat back. 
"'What, mother? Can't hear.' Mrs. Sheridan's voice floated down the stairs. "'Tell her to wear that sweet hat she had on last Sunday.' "'Mother says you're to wear that sweet hat you had on last Sunday. "'Good. One o'clock. Bye-bye.' Laura put back the receiver, flung her arms over her head, took a deep breath, stretched, and let them fall. "'Ha!' she sighed, and the moment after the sigh she sat up quickly. She was still, listening. The front doorbell pealed, and there sounded the rustle of Sadie's print skirt on the stairs. A man's voice murmured. Sadie answered, careless. "'I'm sure I don't know. Wait, I'll ask Mrs. Sheridan.' "'What is it, Sadie?' Laura came into the hall. "'It's the florist, Miss Laura.' It was indeed. There, just inside the door, stood a wide, shallow tray full of pots of pink lilies. No other kind. Nothing but lilies. Canna lilies. Big pink flowers, wide open, radiant, almost frighteningly alive on bright crimson stems. "'Oh, Sadie!' said Laura, and the sound was like a little moan. She crouched down as if to warm herself at the blaze of lilies. She felt they were in her fingers, on her lips, growing in her breast. "'It's some mistake,' she said faintly. "'Nobody ever ordered so many. Sadie, go and find mother.' But at that moment Mrs. Sheridan joined them. "'It's quite right,' she said calmly. "'Yes, I ordered them. Aren't they lovely?' She pressed Laura's arm. "'I was passing the shop yesterday,' and I saw them in the window, and I suddenly thought, for once in my life, I shall have enough canna-lilies. The garden party will be a good excuse. But I thought you said you didn't mean to interfere, said Laura. Sadie was gone. The florist's man was still outside at his van. She put her arm round her mother's neck, and gently, very gently, she bit her mother's ear. My darling child, you wouldn't like a logical mother, would you? Don't do that. Here's the man. He carried more lilies still, another whole tray. "'Bank them up just inside the door on both sides of the porch, please,' said Mrs. Sheridan. "'Don't you agree, Laura?' "'Oh, I do, mother.' In the drawing-room Meg, Jos, and good little Hans had at last succeeded in moving the piano. Now, if we put this Chesterfield against the wall and move everything out of the room except the chairs, don't you think?' "'Quite. Hans, move these tables into the smoking-room.' and bring a sweeper to take these marks off the carpet. Uh, uh, one moment, Hans. Jos loved giving orders to the servants, and they loved obeying her. She always made them feel they were taking part in some drama. Tell Mother and Miss Laura to come here at once. Very good, Miss Jos. She turned to Meg. I want to hear what the piano sounds like, just in case I'm asked to sing this afternoon. Let's try over This Life is Weary. Pom, ta-ta-ta, ti-ta. The piano burst out so passionately that Joseph's face changed. She clasped her hands. She looked mournfully and enigmatically at her mother and Laura as they came in. This life is weary, a tear, a sigh, a love that changes. This life is weary, a tear, a sigh, a love that changes, and then goodbye. But at the word goodbye, and although the piano sounded more desperate than ever, her face broke into a brilliant, dreadfully unsympathetic smile. Aren't I in good voice, mummy? she beamed. This life is weary. Hope comes to die. A dream awakening. But now Sadie interrupted her. What is it, Sadie? If you please, mum. Cook says, have you got the flags for the sandwiches? The flags for the sandwiches, Sadie? echoed Mrs. Sheridan dreamily and the children knew by her face that she hadn't got them. Let me see. 
and she said to Sadie firmly, "'Tell Cook I'll let her have them in ten minutes.' Sadie went. "'Now, Laura,' said her mother quickly, "'come with me into the smoking-room. I've got the name somewhere on the back of an envelope. You'll have to write them out for me. Meg, go upstairs this minute, and take that wet thing off your head. Jose, run and finish dressing this instant. Do you hear me, children? Or shall I have to tell your father when he comes home to-night? And, and Jose, pacify Cook, if you do go into the kitchen, will you? I'm terrified of her this morning.' The envelope was found at last behind the dining-room clock, though how it had got there Mrs. Sheridan could not imagine. One of your children must have stolen it out of my bag, because I remember vividly. Um, cream cheese and lemon curd. Have you done that? Yes. Eggs and, um... Mrs. Sheridan held the envelope away from her. It looks like mice. It can't be mice, can it? Olive, pet, said Laura, looking over her shoulder. Yes, of course, olive. What a horrible combination it sounds. Egg and olive. They were finished at last, and Laura took them off to the kitchen. She found Jos there pacifying the cook, who did not look at all terrifying. "'I've never seen such exquisite sandwiches,' said Jos's rapturous voice. "'How many kinds did you say there were, cook? Fifteen? Fifteen, Miss Jos. "'Well, cook, I congratulate you.' Cook swept up crusts with the long sandwich knife and smiled broadly. "'Godbers has come,' announced Sadie, issuing out of the pantry. She had seen the man pass the window." That meant the cream puffs had come. Godbers were famous for their cream puffs. Nobody ever thought of making them at home. "'Bring them in and put them on the table, my girl,' ordered Cook. Sadie brought them in and went back to the door. Of course, Laura and Jose were far too grown up to really care about such things. All the same, they couldn't help agreeing that the puffs looked very attractive. Very. Cook began arranging them, shaking off the extra icing sugar. "'Don't they carry one back to all one's parties?' said Laura. "'I suppose they do,' said Practical Joes, who never liked to be carried back. "'They look beautifully light and feathery, I must say.' "'Have one each, my dears,' said Cook in her comfortable voice. "'Your ma won't know.' "'Oh, impossible! Fancy cream puffs so soon after breakfast. The very idea made one shudder.' All the same, two minutes later, Jos and Laura were licking their fingers with that absorbed inward look that only comes from whipped cream. "'Let's go into the garden, out by the back way,' suggested Laura. "'I want to see how the men are getting on with the Marquis. They're such awfully nice men.' But the back door was blocked by Cook, Sadie, Godber's man, and Hans. Something had happened. "'Tuck, tuck, tuck!' clucked Cook like an agitated hen." Sadie had her hand clapped to her cheek as though she had toothache. Hans's face was screwed up in the effort to understand. Only Godber's man seemed to be enjoying himself. It was his story. "'What's the matter? What's happened?' "'There's been a horrible accident,' said Cook. "'A man killed.' "'A man killed? Where? How? When?' But Godber's man wasn't going to have his story snatched from under his very nose. "'Now there's little cottages just below here, miss.' "'Know them? Of course she knew them.' "'Well, there's a young chap living there, name of Scott, a carter. "'His horse shied at a traction engine, corner of Hawk Street this morning, "'and he was thrown out on the back of his head, killed.' "'Dead?' Laura stared at Godber's man. "'Dead when they picked him up,' said Godber's man with relish. "'They were taking the body home as I came up.' "'And he said to the cook, "'He's left a wife and five little ones.' "'Jose, come here.' Laura caught hold of her sister's sleeve and dragged her through the kitchen door to the other side of the green beige door. There she paused and leaned against it. "'Jose, 
she said, horrified. However are we going to stop everything? Stop everything, Laura, cried Joe's in astonishment. What do you mean? Stop the garden party, of course. Why did Joe's pretend? But Joe's was still more amazed. Stop the garden party? My dear Laura, don't be absurd. Of course we can't do anything of the kind. Nobody expects us to. Don't be so extravagant. But we can't possibly have a garden party with a man dead just outside the front gate. That really was extravagant, for the little cottages were in a lane to themselves at the very bottom of a steep rise that led up to the house. A broad road ran between. True, they were far too near, they were the greatest possible eyesore, and they had no right to be in that neighborhood at all. They were little mean dwellings painted a chocolate brown. In the garden patches there was nothing but cabbage stalks, sick hens, and tomato cans. The very smoke coming out of their kitchens was poverty-stricken little rags and shreds of smoke so unlike the great silvery plumes that uncurled from the Sheridan's chimneys. Washerwomen lived in the lane, and sweeps, and a cobbler, and a man whose house-front was studded all over with minute bird-cages. Children swarmed. When the Sheridans were little they were forbidden to set foot there because of the revolting language and of what they might catch. But since they were grown up, Laura and Laurie on the prowls sometimes walked through. It was disgusting and sordid, they came out with a shudder. But still, one must go everywhere, one must see everything. So through they went. And just think of what the band would sound like to that poor woman, said Laura. Oh, Laura! Joe began to be seriously annoyed. If you're going to stop a band playing every time someone has an accident, you'll lead a very strenuous life. I'm every bit as sorry about it as you are. I feel just as sympathetic. Her eyes hardened. She looked at her sister just as she used to when they were little and fighting together. "'You won't bring a drunken workman back to life by being sentimental,' she said softly. "'Drunk? Who said he was drunk?' Laura turned furiously on Joe's. She said, just as they had used to say on these occasions, "'I'm going straight up to tell Mother.' "'Do, dear,' cooed Joe's. "'Mother, can I come into your room?' Laura turned the big glass doorknob. "'Of course, child. Why, what's the matter? What's given you such a color?' And Mrs. Sheridan turned round from her dressing-table. She was trying on a new hat. "'Mother, a man's been killed,' began Laura. "'Not in the garden,' interrupted her mother. "'No, no. Oh, what a fright you gave me!' Mrs. Sheridan sighed with relief and took off the big hat and held it on her knees. "'But listen, mother,' said Laura. Breathless, half-choking, she told the dreadful story. "'Of course we can't have a party, can we?' she pleaded. "'The band and everybody arriving, they'd hear us, mother. They're nearly neighbors.' To Laura's astonishment, her mother behaved just like Joe's. It was harder to bear because she seemed amused. She refused to take Laura seriously. "'But, my dear child, use your common sense. It's only by accident we've heard of it.' If someone had died there normally, and I can't understand how they keep alive in those pokey little holes, we should still be having our party, shouldn't we? Laura had to say yes to that, but she felt it was all wrong. She sat down on her mother's sofa and pinched the cushion frill. Mother, isn't it really terribly heartless of us? she began. Darling! Mrs. Sheridan got up and came over to her, carrying the hat. Before Laura could stop her, she had popped it on. "'My child,' said the mother, "'the hat is yours. It's made for you. It's much too young for me. I have never seen you look such a picture. Look at yourself.' And she held up her hand-mirror. 
"'But, mother,' Laura began again. She couldn't look at herself. She turned aside. This time Mrs. Sheridan lost patience, just as Jose had done. "'You are being very absurd, Laura,' she said coldly. "'People like that don't expect sacrifices from us, and it's not very sympathetic to spoil everybody's enjoyment as you're doing now.' "'I don't understand,' said Laura, and she walked quickly out of the room into her own bedroom. There, quite by chance, the first thing she saw was this charming girl in the mirror, in her black hat trimmed with gold daisies and a long black velvet ribbon. Never had she imagined she could look like that. Is mother right, she thought? And now she hoped her mother was right. Am I being extravagant? Perhaps it was extravagant. Just for a moment she had another glimpse of that poor woman and those little children, and the body being carried into the house— but it all seemed blurred, unreal, like a picture in the newspaper. I'll remember it again after the party's over, she decided, and somehow that seemed quite the best plan. Lunch was over by half-past one. By half-past two they were all ready for the fray. The green-coated band had arrived and was established in a corner of the tennis court. "'My dear,' trilled Kitty Maitland, "'aren't they too like frogs for words?' "'You ought to have arranged them around the pond "'with a conductor in the middle on a leaf.' "'Laurie arrived and hailed them on his way to dress. "'At the sight of him, Laura remembered the accident again. "'She wanted to tell him. "'If Laurie agreed with the others, "'then it was bound to be all right, "'and she followed him into the hall. "'Laurie! Hello!' "'He was halfway upstairs, "'but when he turned round and saw Laurie, "'he suddenly puffed out his cheeks "'and goggled his eyes at her.' "'My word, Laura, you do look stunning,' said Laurie. "'What an absolutely topping hat!' Laurie said faintly, "'Is it?' and smiled up at Laurie and didn't tell him after all. Soon after that people began coming in streams. The band struck up, the hired waiters ran from the house to the marquee. Wherever you looked there were couples strolling, bending to the flowers, greeting, moving on over the lawn— they were like bright birds that had alighted in the Sheridan's garden for this one afternoon on their way to where? Ah, what happiness it is to be with people who are all happy, to press hands, press cheeks, smile into eyes. Darling Laura, how well you look! What a becoming hat, child! Laura, you look quite Spanish. I've never seen you look so striking. And Laura, glowing, answered softly, Have you had tea? "'Won't you have an ice? "'The passion fruit ices really are rather special.' "'She ran to her father and begged him, "'Daddy, darling, can't the band have something to drink?' "'And the perfect afternoon slowly ripened, "'slowly faded, slowly its petals closed. "'Never a more delightful garden party. "'The greatest success. "'Quite the most—' "'Laura helped her mother with goodbyes. "'They stood side by side in the porch "'till it was all over.' "'All over, all over, thank heaven,' said Mrs. Sheridan. "'Round up the others, Laura. Let's go and have some fresh coffee. I am exhausted. Yes, it's been very successful, but, oh, these parties, these parties! Why will you children insist on giving parties?' And they all of them sat down in the deserted marquee. "'Have a sandwich, Daddy dear. I wrote the flag.' "'Thanks.' Mr. Sheridan took a bite, and the sandwich was gone. He took another— "'I suppose you didn't hear of a beastly accident that happened today,' he said. "'My dear,' said Mrs. Sheridan, holding up her hand, "'we did. It nearly ruined the party. Laura insisted we should put it off. Oh, mother!' Laura didn't want to be teased about it. 
"'It was a horrible affair all the same,' said Mr. Sheridan. "'The chap was married, too. Lived just below in the lane, and leaves a wife and half a dozen kiddies, so they say.' An awkward little silence fell. Mrs. Sheridan fidgeted with her cup. Really, it was very tactless of father. Suddenly she looked up. There on the table were all those sandwiches, cakes, puffs, all uneaten, all going to be wasted. She had one of her brilliant ideas. "'I know,' she said. "'Let's make up a basket. Let's send that poor creature some of this perfectly good food. At any rate, it will be the greatest treat for the children. Don't you agree? And she's sure to have neighbors calling in, and so on. What a point to have it already prepared. Laura!' She jumped up. "'Get me the big basket out of the stairs cupboard.' "'But, mother, do you really think it's a good idea?' said Laura. "'Again, how curious! She seemed to be different from them all, to take scraps from their party. Would the poor woman really like that?' "'Of course! What's the matter with you today? An hour or two ago you were insisting on being sympathetic, and now—' "'Oh, well!' Laura ran for the basket. It was filled, it was heaped by her mother. "'Take it yourself, darling,' said she. "'Run down just as you are. No, wait!' "'Take the arum lilies, too. "'People of that class are so impressed by arum lilies.' "'The stems will ruin her lace frock,' said Practical Joes. "'So they would, just in time. "'Only the basket, then. "'And Laura—' "'Her mother followed her out of the marquee. "'Don't on any account—' "'What, mother?' "'No, better not put such ideas into the child's head. Uh, "'Nothing. Run along.' "'It was growing dusky as Laura shut their garden gates.' A big dog ran by like a shadow. The road gleamed white, and down below in the hollow the little cottages were in deep shade. How quiet it seemed after the afternoon! Here she was, going down the hill, to somewhere where a man lay dead, and she couldn't realize it. Why couldn't she? She stopped a minute, and it seemed to her that kisses, voices, tinkling spoons, laughter, the smell of crushed grass, were somehow inside her, she had no room for anything else. How strange! She looked up at the pale sky, and all she thought was, yes, it was the most successful party. Now the broad road was crossed. The lane began, smoky and dark. Women in shawls and men's tweed caps hurried by. Men hung over the palings. The children played in the doorways. A low hum came from the mean little cottages— in some of them there was a flicker of light, and a shadow, crab-like, moved across the window. Laura bent her head and hurried on. She wished now she had put on a coat. How her frock shone! And the big hat with the velvet streamer! If only it was another hat! Were the people looking at her? They must be. It was a mistake to have come. She knew all along it was a mistake. Should she go back even now? No, too late. This was the house. It must be. A dark knot of people stood outside. Beside the gate, an old, old woman with a crutch sat in a chair, watching. She had her feet on a newspaper. The voices stopped as Laura drew near. The group parted. It was as though she was expected, as though they had known she was coming here. Laura was terribly nervous. Tossing the velvet ribbon over her shoulder, she said to a woman standing by, "'Is this Mrs. Scott's house?' And the woman, smiling queerly, said, "'It is, my lass.' Oh, to be away from this! She actually said, "'Help me, God,' as she walked up the tiny path and knocked. 
to be away from those staring eyes, or to be covered up in anything, one of those women's shawls even. I'll just leave the basket and go, she decided. I shan't even wait for it to be emptied. Then the door opened. A little woman in black showed in the gloom. Laura said, Are you Mrs. Scott? But to her horror the woman answered, Walk in, please, miss, and she was shut in the passage. No, said Laura, I don't want to come in. I only want to leave this basket. Mother said— The little woman in the gloomy passage seemed not to have heard her. "'Step this way, please, miss,' she said in an oily voice, and Laura followed her. She found herself in a wretched little low kitchen lighted by a smoky lamp. There was a woman sitting before the fire. "'Em,' said the little creature who had let her in. "'Em, it's young lady.' She turned to Laura. She said meaningly, "'I'm a sister, miss. You'll excuse her, won't you?' "'Oh, but of course,' said Laura. "'Please, please, don't disturb her. I only want to leave—' But at that moment the woman at the fire turned round, her face, puffed up, red, with swollen eyes and swollen lips, looked terrible. She seemed as though she couldn't understand why Laura was there. What did it mean? Why was this stranger standing in the kitchen with a basket? What was it all about? And the poor face puckered up again— "'All right, my dear,' said the other. "'I'll thank the young lady.' And again she began, "'You'll excuse her, miss, I'm sure.' And her face, swollen too, tried an oily smile. Laura only wanted to get out, to get away. She was back in the passage. The door opened. She walked straight through into the bedroom where the dead man was lying. "'You'd like a look at him, wouldn't you?' said M's sister, and she brushed past Laura over to the bed. "'Don't be afraid, my lass.' And now her voice sounded fond and sly, and fondly she drew down the sheet. "'He looks a picture. There's nothing to show. Come along, my dear.' Laura came. There lay a young man, fast asleep, sleeping so soundly, so deeply, that he was far, far away from them both. Oh, so remote, so peaceful. He was dreaming. Never wake him up again.' His head was sunk in the pillow, his eyes were closed, they were blind under the closed eyelids. He was given up to his dream. What did garden parties and baskets and lace frocks matter to him? He was far from all those things. He was wonderful, beautiful. While they were laughing and while the band was playing, this marvel had come to the lane. Happy, happy. All is well, said that sleeping face. This is just as it should be. I am content. But all the same you had to cry, and she couldn't go out of the room without saying something to him. Laura gave a loud childish sob. Forgive my hat, she said. And this time she didn't wait for M's sister. She found her way out of the door, down the path, past all those dark people. At the corner of the lane she met Laurie. He stepped out of the shadow. Is that you, Laura? Yes. Mother was getting anxious. Was it all right? Yes, quite. Oh, Laurie. She took his arm. She pressed up against him. I say, you're not crying, are you? asked her brother. Laura shook her head. She was. Laurie put his arm around her shoulder. Don't cry, he said, in his warm, loving voice. Was it awful? No, sobbed Laura. It was simply marvelous. 
But Laurie, she stopped. She looked at her brother. Isn't life, she stammered, isn't life. But what life was, she couldn't explain. No matter, he quite understood. Isn't it, darling? said Laurie. You've been listening to The Garden Party by Catherine Mansfield. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. Thank you.